Today's scripture is from Luke chapter 5. One day Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. We are currently going through a sermon series on the first half of the Gospel of Luke. And our passage today is from Luke chapter 5. And at this point in Jesus' ministry... The Jesus movement is really taking off. Momentum is rapidly building. Jesus' reputation is growing. And the word is out that Jesus is healing the sick. He's performing miracles. So naturally, crowds begin to gather. So much so that in the verses right before our passage today, Jesus heals a man with leprosy. And right after he does, he says, don't tell anyone what I did. Don't tell anyone. But it doesn't work. News about Jesus spreads even more, and crowds of people flock to Jesus. And Jesus does whatever he can at times to withdraw and to be alone. Well, in our passage today, it says that Jesus is teaching in a house. And sure enough, a crowd gathers around the house. And verse 17 says that in the crowd, People from every village of Galilee, every, uh, from Judea, from Jerusalem. And some, of, some in the crowd are Pharisees and teachers of the law. Some are everyday citizens. And some are sick and they're looking to be healed. They come from all over the land. They come from all walks of life. They come curious. And by the end of the passage, they are changed. Verse 26 says, everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable, incredible things today. They come curious, they leave stunned. How often do we approach an event or an experience with curiosity, expectation, only to leave disappointed and disillusioned? We watch a movie trailer, and we can't wait to see the movie, but when we see the movie, it's, it's way worse than the trailer. 
Or how many restaurants do we go to that just don't live up to the hype? How many blind dates don't live up to the person's online profile? But don't we love those rare occasions when we're curious or we're cautiously optimistic and are just blown away by the actual experience that ever happened to you? Because honestly, that is our hope and our prayer for our church every single week. That people from all walks of life, that people from all parts of the city would come to our church curious, seeking, and maybe even expecting, and that they leave blown away. Not by our church, not by us, but because the actual experience of Jesus is so far beyond what they imagined or expected. That even within the ordinary Sunday service, the extraordinary Savior would fill people with awe. And that all who come would leave praising God, stunned. And that's what we see in our passage today. What did the people experience? What did they see? A miracle? Well, sure. And you're probably thinking that if if you came to church on a Sunday and you saw a paralyzed man lying down on a mat, get up and walk out of service, you'd be pretty amazed too. But you know what? There's something even bigger going on here. There are many other miracles recorded in the Gospels where the Gospel writer doesn't go out of his way to describe the utter amazement of the witnesses. So what was it about this experience that was so unforgettable for the people who were there? And how can we also leave amazed by this event? There are three aspects of the story that I want to point you to today. The first is the human problem. Second, the divine question. And third, the changed life. First, the human problem. In this passage, a group of men come to the house where Jesus is teaching and they're carrying their paralyzed friend on a mat. And they can't enter the house because of the crowd. And when Mark tells the same story, he tells us that they can't even get near the door. There are that many people there. But they're desperate. They will not take no for an answer. So what do they do? They climb the stairs to the roof of the house and they begin to dig frantically through the roof. They remove tiles, and finally, after much work, they break through. So imagine Jesus in the house, teaching, speaking with all of the people who are kind of crammed into the room. All of a sudden, they hear a noise coming from the ceiling. Everyone looks up, and and they hear the noise, and sure enough, the ceiling opens up. Dust and debris, they they fall all around. And everyone looks up and they see peering through the hole a group of men, dirty, sweaty from their efforts. They're breathing heavily as they begin to lower their friend down into the house, right in the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. And when the man reaches the ground... You can kind of imagine the commotion dying down really quickly and everybody leans in to see what Jesus will do. Is Jesus going to heal this guy? No one says a word. Jesus looks down at the man. He looks up at the friends. 
he looks back down at the man who's just lying there. He's not saying anything. And after what must have felt like forever, Jesus speaks. And what does he say to him? He says, friend, your sins are forgiven. You ever go to a restaurant and you order something and it, it, it sounds really good and you're very excited and then the waiter brings out something else? The waiter gets the order wrong and you think to yourself, I'm, I'm sure it's delicious, but it's not what I ordered. Is that what's going on here? Did Jesus mess up the order? Did he just blow his tip? Imagine what the man and the friends are thinking as they hear Jesus tell him, your sins are forgiven. They're probably thinking, who said anything about sin? Jesus, everyone knows that you're a healer. It's great that my sins are forgiven. Thank you. But how about the obvious problem? Paralysis. And here's the point that Jesus is making here. To every single person in the room, it's clear that this paralyzed man's greatest problem is his disability. His greatest need is for healing. So whether you're a Pharisee, whether you're a commoner, whether you're one of Jesus' disciples, you're looking at this man and you're thinking, this guy clearly needs a healing, not forgiveness. And Jesus says no. He says no. That's not what this man needs. What might seem to you like your most pressing need is actually not. Let me ask you this. What are the biggest problems in your life? What are the things in your life that give you the most anxiety, that cause you the most stress? What keeps you up at night? What is that one thing that you think to yourself, if only this would go away? If only this would get better? I mean, we all have our problems. What are yours? Career, relationships, marriage, children, parents, loneliness, depression, anxiety, bitterness, addiction, etc., etc. We have problems upon problems upon problems. Jesus says to this man and to us today that the problem underneath all of your other problems is the problem of sin. Your biggest problem is not your struggling marriage. Your biggest problem is not your physical sickness. Your problem, your biggest problem is not your pain, your trauma, your worst enemy your biggest problem is you, is your sin. And until that problem is addressed, any way you deal with all of your other problems, what you're basically doing is you're putting Band-Aids on cancer. And if this is true, then the way that we view the entire human condition completely changes. In this story, for instance, you see a paralyzed man. And on the surface, you, he's someone to be pitied. Your heart rightfully goes out to him. He's a victim of his circumstances. And, and, and we think, and the world thinks, poor guy. Going through life, especially in the ancient world, before today's modern medical advances, no physical therapy, 
No options. He's a paralyzed man. If only this guy could get some help. If only he could be healed of his condition. But Jesus looks at the same man, and he has a very different diagnosis. Jesus is saying here that he is not a good man who was dealt a bad hand, who just needs some help. Jesus says that this man is a bad person, a sinner who deserves far worse, far less than what he already has. This man desperately needs forgiveness. Friends, we live in an age where, in which the buzzwords are privilege and victimhood. And so much is made of what institutions, what worldviews, what political and economic systems, what people groups should bear the responsibility for the systemic injustices that are prevalent in this world. And I believe that these are realities that we do need to think of as Christians. But what the Bible is saying here is that the biggest problem in this world, in your world, in your life, is you. It is your sin. Uh, there's a new uh, Netflix film that just came out a few weeks ago called Come Sunday, and my wife Jean and I watched it this week. And um, I got really excited for it because, you know, there's so many movies about other people's professions. There, there, there are cop movies, there are lawyer movies, there are doctor movies, even all you finance people, there, there, there are banker movies, but this is a pastor movie. <laughs> So I, I, I got excited about it. It tells a true story of a Pentecostal pastor, uh, Bishop Carlton Pearson, and he's played by the great Chiwetel Ejiofor. And the performances in this movie are outstanding. The theology, on the other hand, is not. And in a way, that's the point. Because it tells a story about, in the early 2000s, Pearson was the celebrated pastor, gifted, of one of, the, one of Tulsa, Oklahoma's largest megachurches. It was called Higher Dimensions. And it's a story of how he loses everything. His church goes from thousands to foreclosed in a matter of years. Why? Because he changes his view on hell. And he comes to believe that there is no hell. Everybody is saved. And what's interesting is the way that the movie portrays him. It doesn't tell this story as a tragic tale of a pastor going astray. It portrays him as this sympathetic hero who basically gets woke. He sees the light and he rebels against the antiquated and oppressive beliefs of Christianity and he sticks to his convictions even though it costs him everything. It's a fascinating film. And in the movie, what pushes him to finally come to the light is he's watching the news and he's seeing thousands of people who are dying during the Rwandan genocide. And he asks himself a series of questions that I, as a pastor, get asked all the time. He thinks, when did the people in Africa separate from God? When did they make a choice? How do they get saved? You ever struggle with this issue? How is it fair 
that someone who grows up in Saudi Arabia never hears the gospel, dies, and then gets sent to hell? That's the question that he's struggling with here. And here's what he says. He says that he heard God's voice. He says, as clear as my own, say they don't need to get saved. They're already saved. They will all be with me in heaven. God allegedly told him that. And the problem with that, what Pearson is missing on a fundamental level, really is the moral culpability of humans. You see, to him, people, um, they're, they're, they're like the paralyzed man on the surface. They're morally neutral. They're victims of their spiritual condition. And you know what? If everyone is morally neutral and you get saved based on a choice you make, then of course the concept of hell seems unjust and contrary to the notion of love. If you think that people are not that bad, they just need a little help, then God seems crazy and sadistic to send people to hell forever. But I think what the reality of hell reveals to me and should reveal to all of us is just how horrifying and unspeakable and evil our sin really is. My sin is so bad that the penalty of it is eternity in hell. My sin was so bad that God couldn't just forgive it. He couldn't just say, that's all right. God the Son, Jesus, had to die on a cross in order to forgive sin. Tim Keller puts it this way in his book on the Psalms. He says that sin is ultimately cosmic treason. Cosmic treason. You know, one of the worst crimes that you can be accused of in this country, it's not rape, it's not murder, it is treason. And even if you kill someone while committing treason, you're going to be charged with, with treason because that's the greater charge. So if you are, let's say, an ISIS sympathizer who plans on committing acts of terror in this country, you know what? At that point, all of your good acts and your bad acts don't really matter, do they? It doesn't matter how many dogs you've rescued. That one time where you gave to charity, the fact that you paid your taxes on time does not matter. You've committed treason. And you know what? Even your bad acts don't matter. No one's going to care if you jaywalk. No one's going to care if you steal a wallet because you've committed treason. You're guilty of treason. When we view sin as mistakes we make, then the idea of hell seems like a huge overreaction on God's part. How can he send people to hell forever? But if we view sin as treason, against a good, a loving, a holy, a perfect God, then all of our good acts and all of our bad acts really don't matter. Two weeks ago, after church, uh, my family, we were having dinner, and my four-year-old Andy, he was being silly. He wasn't eating his dinner. So I threatened him with the worst punishment that I could think of. I said, if you don't eat right now, you are not getting a treat after dinner. 
I know, my parenting can be savage. <clears throat> and my sweet four-year-old's face just changed. He looked at me so angrily, and then he said to me the worst thing that he could think of. He said, if you don't give me a treat, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> what do you say to that? <laughs> and in that moment, in that moment, his bad acts didn't matter. He could have slapped me in the face and it wouldn't have hurt as much as that. His good acts, he could have gone and he could have cleaned his room spotless. doesn't matter. And of course, I wasn't devastated. He's a little kid. He doesn't know what that means. But his heart, what was he saying? I mean, he was saying the worst thing he could think of. But what he was basically saying is, I don't care about you. I don't want you. Either help me get what I want or stay out of my way. Stay out of my life. I don't want you. I want to be king. Sin is not breaking God's rules. Sin is breaking relationship with God. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin is breaking God's heart. And until we understand the bad news, we're never going to truly understand the good news. Because when it comes to God, we never threatened to kill God. We actually did. And on the cross, as Jesus is being crucified, he prays for the people who are killing him, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That truth, that great truth, it's never going to be incredible for us until we grasp even a little bit the horror of our sin. My next point is the divine question. Let's go back to the story. The hole in the roof and probably a very angry homeowner. Dust and debris is everywhere. Sweaty friends lowering their friend down to Jesus. And it kind, Jesus looks at the man and he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. And everyone's first thought is obviously, that's not what he ordered. That's not his problem. But it, it dawns on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law what a massively crazy thing Jesus just said. Wait, what? What did he just say? What kind of blasphemy is this? They know exactly what Jesus is claiming here. Why are they so shocked? Two reasons. First, they knew that sin involved a debt that had to be paid. And that cost was too great for any man to pay. Psalm 49, verses 7 through 8 says this, No man... No man can redeem the life of another or give God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is too costly. No payment is ever enough. When Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, what he's basically saying is, I'll pay it. I'll pay the debt. It's like me declaring to the whole room that I will pay off the U.S. national debt. I pull out my checkbook and I write a check to the U.S. Uh, Treasury for $22 trillion. Put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, and mail it out. And I, I, I wonder, if they got that, what would they do with that check? Would they even try? 
No payment that a man can pay is ever sufficient. Everyone knew that. The Pharisees knew this. Jesus is obviously a crazy person saying, I can pay it. Jesus saying he has enough to pay the debt. But secondly, not only is there a debt, but they also knew that sin was ultimately against God. And therefore, only God has the right to forgive it. So every, every Sunday after service, the pastors are up here and we ask people to come and to meet us or to ask questions or to receive prayer. Let's say that one of you came up to me and you hated the sermon so much that you just slapped me in the face. And then immediately, Pastor Aaron says, I forgive you. <laughs> I'll be standing there rubbing my cheek saying, he hit me. <laughs> I'm the one who should decide whether or not this person is forgiven. The sin is against me, not against you. It's not his place to forgive. Sin is ultimately treason against God, and thus only God has the right to forgive. What Jesus is clearly saying here is that he has that right, and the only way he has that right is if he is God. The Pharisees are rightly stunned by this. And Jesus perceives, he knows what they're thinking, and he asks them a question, and it's sort of a riddle. He asks, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Which is easier to say? And on the one hand, if you really think about this, it's easier for someone to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because that's not really verifiable. If I say to you, your sins are forgiven, how's anyone going to know if I'm lying? How's anyone going to know if your sins are really forgiven? But if I say, get up and walk, and after a few seconds, after a few minutes, no one's walking, it's pretty clear right away that I'm a fraud. But on the other hand, the act of forgiving sins is much harder than healing a paralyzed man. How do I know this? Well, because in the Bible... Other people heal paralyzed men. Peter and John do it in Acts chapter 3. But only one man in the Bible forgives sins. No normal man can forgive sins, but Jesus is not a normal man, is he? His claim here is that he is not a normal man, but he is also God. He's also divine and therefore able to forgive sins. So Jesus asks, what's harder but before he gives the answer to that question, he twists the knife in deeper. In verse 24, he refers to himself by what would become his favorite self-title. He calls himself the Son of Man. What does that title mean? Well, it's from Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament, and here's what Daniel 7 says. In my vision, Daniel speaking here, at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days, God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. When Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, what he's saying is, I'm that guy. I'm that guy from Daniel. 
that guy who, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, that guy whose, whose kingdom is one that will never be destroyed, that's me. He's saying, I don't just have the authority to forgive this man's sins, but guess what? I have all God-given authority over all people, all nations, all language groups, for all time. Me forgiving this guy? Just the start. Just the start. And everyone in that room knows exactly what Jesus is referring to when he calls himself the Son of Man. In one fell swoop, Jesus is telling everyone that he is none other than God. He is the long-awaited Savior of Israel. Jesus, this uneducated son of a carpenter, is claiming to be God. And you know what? If he's wrong, if he's not God, he's not someone who should be worshipped or admired. He is the biggest fraud in history. And you know what? We Christians are the biggest suckers. But here's what Luke tells us. Jesus had asked the question, which is harder to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? What's his answer? What's the answer to the riddle? Jesus' answer is this, both, and I can do both. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Jesus backs up his stupendous claim. The miracle is the proof. And this is why Jesus was so controversial. On the one hand, he was so unlike what the Jews expected their Messiah to be like. But on the other hand, he shows power like this that just by commanding, he can make this man walk. Jesus can be so unassuming, yet so glorious, so weak, but so strong. And nowhere do we see this clearer than when Jesus dies on the cross. Remember that we said that no man, no man could pay the ransom for another life, and Jesus said he could. When Jesus tells the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, what he's doing is he's writing a check. He's writing a check for the amount and he's mailing it in and on the cross is when the check clears. Jesus upon the cross declares, it is finished, to telestai. This phrase was commonly written on receipts in the ancient world and it basically meant paid in full. Paid in full. When Jesus tells this man, get up and walk, that word, get up, rise in the Greek, it's the same word used to refer to Jesus' own resurrection. This man's sins are forgiven and he's healed because Jesus pays down the debt on the cross and then conquers sin and death once and for all in his resurrection. And that is the hope for you and me. Our sins are forgiven and we're healed once and for all because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I love what Jesus calls him in verse 20. Friend, friend. You know, this man had some pretty good friends, didn't he? He had friends who would stop at nothing to get this man help. He had friends who would not quit. 
He had friends who would do whatever it took, even if it meant climbing the roof, tearing down the roof, and lowering their friend down to somebody who might be able to help. He had some pretty great friends. Jesus looks at this man and says, I am the true friend. I am the friend. You have great friends, but you have an even better friend here. Jesus is the one who carries this man, not up upon a roof, but up to the heavens. God the Father sees Jesus' faith and says, that is enough. This man's sins are forgiven. And this man will rise to eternal life because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so will you. My last point is the changed life. How will you respond to this good news? What's fascinating about this story is that the man himself does absolutely nothing. (laughs) Nothing. He doesn't even speak. He's literally carried throughout the whole story. He's carried all the way to Jesus. He's saved entirely based upon the works of others. And even when he's lowered down to Jesus, he doesn't speak. He's silent. But Jesus sees his faith. He sees the faith of his friend. He sees. I love it. I love that there's no grand and dramatic gestures. There's no ministrations, no hoops to jump through, no ceremonies to perform. What we see is literally the tiniest amount of faith in Jesus. And Jesus sees it, and it's enough. This man never even verbally repents. But Jesus knows his heart, and he saves him. And the man is completely changed. This man who was silent in his suffering, he walks home praising God, no longer silent. Because he's not only healed, but his deepest and his truest problem is removed. He's forgiven. Are you? Are you? On page one of your bulletin, there's a quote by Blaise Pascal, and it says this, knowing God without knowing our wretchedness leads to pride. Knowing our wretchedness without knowing God leads to despair. Knowing Jesus Christ is the middle course because in him we find both God and our wretchedness. I want to ask you this question. Do you know your wretchedness? Do you have a true sense of your sin? Here's one way to know. Are you more bothered in your life by the sins of others or by your own sins? What bothers you more? Do you have a healthy sense of how deeply disturbing your own sins are, that you are guilty of cosmic treason. But I also want to speak right now to anyone in this room who is struggling with guilt and shame, who is in despair over sin. You are all too aware of your sin. Perhaps you're struggling with habitual sin. Maybe you're enslaved, you're, you're addicted to sin, and it feels like you will never break free. You will never change. In the movie that I talked about earlier, Come Sunday, there's this one scene that really broke my heart. Pearson is trying to counsel a younger parishioner. 
His name is Reggie. He's played by Lakeith Stanfield. And Reggie is in utter anguish. You see, he's just been diagnosed with lymphoma, and all around his room are just medicine bottles. And he doesn't know how much time he has left, and he's just crushed by guilt and shame. And he's weeping, and he tells Pearson, I'm so scared of going to hell. And Pearson tells him, you're not. And Reggie says, how do you know? How do you know? And Pearson's answer, I just know. When the time comes, you'll be with him. You don't need to be saved. And when Reggie hears that, his face doesn't light up. He's not relieved of his burden. He's inconsolable. Because Reggie knows that deep down, there's something very wrong with him. And as Pearson was counseling Reggie, I wanted to yell at the TV and say, that's not good news. That's not good news. What about the cross? You know what? If you take away sin, if you take away the cross, if you take away forgiveness, you know what else you're taking away? Hope. Hope. And you're left with this superficial, this oprified gospel of inclusion and solidarity that sounds great on the surface, but underneath it gives no assurance in the face of death and eternity. Are you like Reggie today? Are you feeling crushed by your sin and guilt and shame? Do you find it impossible to forgive yourself? And I want to say these words to you that Jesus himself said, and I want you to listen to these words because they're the most beautiful words you will ever hear. Friend, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. He has forgiven you. So who are you then to refuse to forgive yourself? Get up. Get out of your sin. Return home praising him. The last thing I'll mention, and this by way of practical application, is this. Who are your friends who are hurting? Who are your friends who are paralyzed, unable to get to Jesus without intervention, without assistance? Do you have a brother? Do you have a sister? Do you have a father, a mother, a husband, a wife, a child? Does it feel like they will never change? Does it feel like they will never believe? Don't give up on them. Find a way to get them to Jesus, even if it means breaking through the roof. Pray for them. Do not stop until they are before Jesus. Their sins are forgiven and their true condition is healed. Our Savior has both the authority to forgive and the power to heal. Don't stop until your loved one is stunned amazed, filled with awe and praising God. There is hope. There is good news. Let's pray. Father, how, how wonderful, how glorious. My Savior scars victorious. My chains are gone. My debt is paid. From death to life, from grace to grace. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.